Talking Theater with Sir Holworth Felix Smooth, the only podcast on earth about the theater. Saturday. When the feeling's gone and you can't go on, it's tragedy. When the morning cries and your heart just dies, it's hard for bears. With no one to love you, you're going nowhere. Tragedy. I've never thought of the Bee Gees as philosophers, and looking back at these lyrics, I think I was right not to. They're trite, melodramatic, and to a degree remedial, but there is a ring of truth to them. Tragedy certainly is about crying, dying, feelings gone, and uh, wild bears, especially in the theatre. Tragedy is around every corner, whether it's the final stage of some epic tale, a a monumental tableau for the thousand patrons watching from out there in the dark auditoria, or just the quiet tragedy of the prompt book corner crew member Norman, who nobody talks to because he stinks and always has bacon bits in his beard. Tragedy abounds, and so it deserves our attention. And believe you me, or believe me, you, I mean to crack open the head of tragedy, extract its brain, and study it like a mad scientist, or my brother Jack, who was also a mad scientist. And so by the end of this podcast, rather like the end of a tragedy, I expect to be stood over the carcass of a ripped open tragedy screaming from my lungs with the knowledge of it. Tragedy, I mean to know you. Good day. My name is Hole with Felix to Smooth, and welcome once again to my very own premier series, Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. If you've stumbled upon this series, and indeed this episode, I might ask you to please go straight to episode one of series one for a more well-rounded experience. Uh, the series is extremely nuanced and educational, so all tis needed is a, a good ear, uh, ink, Pen and papier. Uh, that's français for paper. Uh, français means uh, French. I've also been informed that on occasion the podcast is orgasmic, so perhaps a box of tissues would not come amiss either. Uh, well, if you're ready, then off you go to episode one. I mean it. If you think I'm going to continue whilst you think you can skip 11 episodes, then you're sorely mistaken, Buster. No, Sean, no. I won't continue. But Sean, he won't go. What do you mean, who? The man who stumbled upon this episode first and wants to listen to the podcasts out of order. He's bloody out of order. Oh, yeah, sure, I'm being unreasonable. (laughs) Yeah, sure, I've made him up. Oh, no, I've made him up in my head. It's so hypothetical, is it? Okay, well, let's crack on anyway. Let's crack on. He was being stubborn, though, wasn't he? Well, I've had a most interesting uh, week, listener, having um, just returned from the Channel 4 studios after taking part in a celebrity special of their hit television programme, Naked Attractions. 
Uh, for those who haven't seen it, the ironically titled Naked Attractions is a game show whereby an extremely annoying person, justifiably single, is stood in front of six coloured pods, all of which hold a naked prisoner inside. Um, coincidentally, also single because of how annoying they are to listen to and equally striking to look at. Um, Sean made me change the original word I was going to use. Uh, it wasn't striking. Uh, striking is his word, uh, uh, not mine. Anyway, the annoying person must then eliminate the prisoners one after another after each round of seeing a portion of their lumpy and bumpy body and bits and things. This continues until one prisoner is left standing. Uh, once eliminated, each unsuccessful candidate walks out of the booth, uh, meets the annoying singleton, and then walks away into the void. Uh, I think to their sure and uh, certain death. Um, I'm not sure, though, as, as I indeed <laughs> won it and uh, was the final candidate left. Um, though when I asked the producers after about those other losing candidates, um, well, he didn't say anything. He just um, stared at me and, without blinking, slowly shook his head before walking away making a hissing sound. And all of this is done under the watchful eye of Asda floor manager turned ringmaster presenter Anne Richardson, who is just lovely and uh, who was most uh, gracious when I, I kept mistaking her for Claudia Winkleman's. Uh, I said to her, I'm so sorry I keep doing it, um, but you do look a little bit like her. And uh, she said, it's okay, it happens all the time. And I said, I'll bet... And uh, she said, have you met her? And, and I said, well, I went to Strictly once for the Blackpool special to support my good friend Anne Whittacombe, and she brushed past me. And uh, her shoulder was like a block of ice. And uh, she said, no, she is very cold. That's true, she's a very cold woman, but uh, I'd love her money. Uh, and I said, oh, wouldn't we all, wouldn't we all? She's a lovely girl, Claudia. Uh, I mean, Anna. So yes, there I was. I'm stood in my orange um, pod, completely naked, which was lovely because the glow gave me a sort of uh, Dubaian tan. It was most flattering. Uh, whereas the purple colour in Michael Parkinson's box brought his varicose veins out terribly. And Ian McDermott in the yellow box looked practically jaundice. I was so delighted to get to the end, and uh, Mary Berry and I had a lovely lunch together after. She knows my persuasion, and it was all for charity. Still, she took all her clothes off, she's a game girl, and uh, we held hands and strode out uh, straight onto the bus, and uh, then to the restaurant, uh, which had, of course, been arranged by uh, Channel 4. I mean, the producers told us we actually could wear clothes, uh, in fact, they begged us to, but uh, we didn't care, and away we went. <laughs> As Mary Berry said, I came into the world naked, Holworth, and I shall go to Nando's naked. And quite right, too. For a cake dweller, Mary has the most beautiful complexion and figure. The only thing is the bob haircut. It uh, makes her head appear a little large for her petite frame. And like I said to her, she looks a little like E.T. when he's in disguise. A darling woman, though, and uh, what a treat. I should uh, get to spend time with her and uh, get a good look at her buns, her beautiful babka. And at one point when she bent over to retrieve her bag, her pan au chocolat. High tea, indeed. <laughs> it was delicious. 
in all seriousness, I, I think the show does a great deal, actually, in, in pushing forward the idea that what you see isn't always what you get. And that's indeed if somebody is a little bit lumpy. And if somebody is a little bit bumpy. That's not just the reason they find themselves doomed to singledom. It's also their vacuous and annoying personality to boot. I mean, bless the show for trailblazing that very important message. Not to mention the idea that, that, that one shouldn't just consider a person's looks when searching for the one. When all else fails, it's better to be humped by someone a bit dishy than it is by somebody who might be able to make you laugh but is three times the size of you, has dandruff, a wonky left eye, and crooked molars. I should add that that last part isn't a dig at my ex-wife. That would be crass and unfair and uh, also untrue. It was her incisors that were crooked, not her molars, which, to be fair, were a mixed bag. How apt that we should mention, dear Georgette, as we move on to today's podcast, which is all about tragedy. That merciless genre that, unlike Naked Attractions, takes no prisoners, but like Naked Attractions, involves a great deal of blood, crying, vulnerable people, and death. Let's explore it, shall we? As we say, on with the show! It's very hard for me to give a citation about tragedy. Even the mere mention of the word can send me into fits of crying, bouts of wailing and just general blubbing. It's no surprise to my friends, but I've always worn my heart on my sleeve. It's a defect I've had since birth, and it was only corrected two years ago when a surgeon by the name of Walid took on the unenviable task of removing the heart and placing it back in the ribcage where it belongs and where it beats to this day. Thank Christ. The condition, known as wrist heart, does cause a very excessive and often debilitating outpouring of emotion, and so tragedies, which by their very nature are sad affairs, could be a particular issue for me. When I saw Titanic in the picture house, I remember being so overcome with emotion at the tragic ending that I made the entire auditoria get up and hold each other until the credits rolled to a close. I wanted people to cherish what they had, and I think in the end they did. I mean, I'll never forget their faces as I sobbed continuously and held them at knife point until they embraced and told each other they loved each other and would never let them go. Sweating, trembling, and some of them like me crying, they really meant it. Besides which, they couldn't very well get out. I'd barricaded the door with a large thing, which I can't recall very well because of all the emotion, but I think she served ice creams before the film, so I'm assuming that she was an usher. Well, she made a very good blockage, and at one point a battering ram. Nevertheless, the incident is just one of many, where my own emotions have prohibited me from being able to deal with tragedy. I might also like to mention the time I screamed all the way through the world premiere of Death of a Salesman, continually fainted through Sunset Boulevard, and to this day consistently smash up household objects while watching EastEnders. Though the last might not just be because of the tragedy, uh, it might also be because of the writing, the acting, and the deadly combination of the two. It's true, tragedies are hard to compass. You couldn't draw a circle around them if you tried, but they are a necessity as a genre, and to understand them, we must go back, 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 back. back.
Our closest guess is that tragedy in the theatre started a long time ago. I'm not talking weeks or months, as many as years ago. And it's not hard to imagine. You only have to put old tragedy into YouTube and you'll find all sorts of old things pop up to show you how old tragedy is. Of course, one is immediately reminded of Shakespeare as the foremost tragedian of his generation. But why did he write so many tragedies? Well, our best guess is that he followed that old adage, write what you know. And by that assertion, one must come to the conclusion that Shakespeare had possibly the most depressing life on record. To have lived a life and seen as many people be slaughtered, prisoned, poisoned, raped, decapitated and baked in the pie is unheard of. But if he hadn't lived this excruciating life of pain and misery, we wouldn't have the great plays of his that we still have. Today. So I thank goodness Shakespeare saw an old man carry his dead daughter screaming. I thank God he's seen a young girl raped before having her hands and tongue cut off. I thank God he's had to clean the blood from his stained hands after murdering an old Scottish king, because if he hadn't had those experiences, I wouldn't be able to cry well and occasionally sleep through some of those wonderful and long plays. And hats off to him. I have tried to channel my own talents into the theatre and, and write what I know, but uh, unfortunately I've only ever been able to produce a, a small pamphlet on wild grouse and Tupperware, two things I, I, I know a great deal about, but which continue to elude me uh, in their dramatic potential. Who knows? In the future, who knows? <laughs> Perhaps a more prevalent question is why indeed audiences flock to tragedies in the sure and certain knowledge they'll come out a shivering wreck, wanting to call their mums, questioning the world around them, perhaps even kicking a homeless chap on their way to the tube in frustration. Um, sorry again about that, Lenny. Why do we wish to see these dreadful things? Michael Winner once told me it was all about catharsis, but uh, I doubt bottom trouble has anything to do with it. No, the best answer I got was from my chiropodist, Tucker Good, who, while we were on the subject, actually told me I had the best feet in Los Angeles, and uh, he did Demi Reynolds. He told me that we go because the suffering of others makes us appreciate our own lives more. The Germans call it Schadenfreude, which loosely translates as uh, gaining or deriving pleasure from another's misfortune. Certainly sounds German, doesn't it? It's a difficult uh, concept to grasp. Uh, perhaps I'll give you an example. Um, imagine, if you will, a man at a zoo. He loves the gibbons, and he asks the zookeeper if he might get to see the gibbons, because he is something of a, a celebrity. And because, indeed, he is something of a celebrity, he is taken in. The gibbons are nice at first, and he's left to feed them. When the keeper returns, the gibbons have stripped him, and he's clinging on to a tire, screaming to be helped, before, and I'll quote here, they get the ghoulies. Now, the keeper does but laugh. They are tearing at the tire, nearly getting the ghoulies, but he stands there and laughs. He is, as they say, schadenfreudering. And it is the same principle in the theatre with tragedy, except instead of laughing at the person being, oh, I don't know, disemboweled, as was the case in my 1990 production of Antique Cleopatra, they cry outwardly while secretly revelling inwardly at the fact they've never had to experience such a thing. 
that production, by the way, was absolutely astonishing. Dame Eileen Atkins played Cleopatra for me and was so surprised by my new and improved ending, mainly because we never told her about it. In Shakespeare's original, the Egyptian queen, I don't know if you know, takes the asp, uh, which is a, a small snake, and allows it to bite her in what is uh, widely accepted as an act of suicide. But in my version, I wanted the reaction to be so genuine that I simply told Eileen to learn the lines and that the final moments would be the most authentic on the first night when she finally knew of my plan. So there she was, uh, on the night, delivering her final line, and as she turned to the attendant lord, expecting to be handed her asp, uh, she felt this wriggling in her gold-plated corset, uh, and in the melee of the opening night she hadn't realised how large that corset was that was fitted for her for the final scene. Uh, but just in that moment, I could see in her eyes, she, she then realised, you know, she went back in her head, and before she had time to scream, Oh, Holworth, please God, no! A large and uh, quite aggressive barracuda burst from her corset like the famous scene from Alien. Uh, was fake blood flew everywhere, and Eileen, who has had a crippling phobia of snakes since she was a small girl, uh, a large anaconda took her entire family in a weekend trip to Scarborough, uh, Eileen cried loudly to which uh, two stagehands came on and uh, wrestled the beast until it was well and truly dead. Um, I think they put three bullets to its head. It uh, took a lot to get it down. Uh, a lot. Uh, meanwhile, Eileen had a seizure and passed out. Um, and, you know, Cleopatra was dead. Well, you could have heard a pin drop in the auditorium. Apart from all the people being sick from the sight of all the blood, snake venom and seizure throat juice, the whole room was dumbstruck. There really wasn't a dry eye in the house. Well, you know, of course, flinging herself all over the shop meant she'd flicked a mouth foam in the eye of nearly every patron. So there really wasn't a dryer in the house. It was very arteau. Oh, it was very arteau, very theatre of cruelty. And do you know what? I bloody loved it. And uh, that's what matters, really. Uh, we closed, which uh, I think ended up being the real tragedy, and Eileen hasn't spoken to me since. And uh, not just because she completely swallowed her tongue. Uh, she had a silver one fitted, and it suits her, and she's very adept with us. Uh, well, I'm told. So, no, she hasn't spoken to me because of the shock, but by God, in tragedy, that's what you call a fucking ending. You've been listening to Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about theatre. Next up, I'm going to take a bath. I want to play with my rubbery duck. His name is John and he's mine. You won't experience that, obviously, because we'll edit it out. Once I've had my bath, though, I shall return to educate you once more about tragedy. But first, a word from this week's sponsors. There's a way to tell the difference between somebody who has survived a stroke and somebody who hasn't. One is alive. The other is dead. Signs of a stroke can be small. Are you winking at me? Or they can be big. Jesus Christ, your face is melting. Whatever happens, they could be spotted by thinking of this simple word. It's easy to remember. When you suspect a stroke, think. Stroke. S is for soil. Has the person soiled themselves? Is there poo-poo in the area? Do they need the toilet suddenly? Do they smell as if they've done a whoopsie? That could be a sign. T is for toilet. 
Do they look as if they should have just gone to the toilet because they've soiled themselves? Do you need to take them to the toilet because there is poo-poo in the area? Do they smell like a toilet that somebody has just done a whoopsie in? That could be a sign. R is for rectum. Do they look as though they have emptied their rectum all over the place? Is there rectal deposits like poo-poo in the area? That could be a sign. O is for oh god, have you just pooed yourself? Do you find yourself continually making the sound oh? Are you covering your face as you do it because the smell of the poo-poo is too much? That could be a sign. K is for kickback. Are you finding the person is very sensitive about you accusing them of soiling themselves? If you attempt to clean it up, are you finding they can't stop replacing it? That could be a sign. Finally, E. E is for emergency. This is an emergency. Whether they are having a stroke or not, this much poo-poo is a medical emergency and must be dealt with. That could be a sign. Stroke. Thinking stroke can save lives and also a great deal of stress and trauma for other diners just trying to enjoy a meal. Stroke. Think stroke. Stroke. S-T-R-O-K-E. Stroke. Soil. Toilet. Rectum. Oh God. Kickback. Emergency. Think stroke. 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 Think stroke. Poo. Whoopsie. Stroke. Stroke. Stroke sponsors Talking Theatre. The only podcast on earth about the theatre. When I faxed Liam Neeson and asked him what he considered to be the greatest tragedy he could think of, he told me about an occasion when he was at a restaurant and a novice waiter ruined his evening when they thought his order for a rosé wine meant pouring half red and half white in each other. Neeson was certainly clearly affected by it, for he cried down the phone to me, even relaying it, and it had happened as many as 20 years ago. According to Neeson, he dispatched the boy quickly, wringing his neck like, in his words, a prize-winning turkey at Christmas. That last part Neeson relayed with particular relish and affection, as, as I recall. What I was really asking, though, Liam, was the business of tragedy. What really makes for good tragedy? Of course, we've seen a compilation of people falling downstairs, or cars crashing, or difficult weather causing things to fall on people. And sure, they're devastating and funny in one instance, but they don't get to the heart of the real tragedy. And I believe it is because of the distinct lack of the tragic voice. Tragedy calls for a particular type of delivery. Now, I know I normally charge upwards of £2.50 for a vocal lesson, but I feel this is so intrinsic, I'm happy to include it here for gratis, for you guys out there, my devoted readers. Please note, if you're not a devoted listener, please skip this section or send £2.50 to the relevant PO box, which you can find in the footnotes of this citation. Don't be a dick about it. So we're going to do a bit of an exercise. Now stand up for me. Are you stood? Lovely. 
If you're on the bus, just ask people to move out of the way for you. You should still be able to do it. If they won't move, just give them a little bit of a shove, especially if they look elderly. Okay, lovely. Now, shoulders back. Are your shoulders back? Good. Actually, a little bit further than that. Brilliant. Now, deep breath in, and after three, I want you to say, They've taken my daughter to the shed. Actually, no, I should perhaps just give you some context. Um, you're playing a father whose daughter has been taken to the shed. It's a very classic, tragic setup. Uh, sheds are gloomy, cold, dreary places, uh, as are many daughters. Mine's an absolute horror. So the entire setup should send shivers up the back. So there we are. Uh, let's say it together without anything. And a deep breath. They've taken my daughter to the shed. Feel anything? No. Me neither. You see, it's not as easy as you think. Okay, so how do we inject what is required to bring about this tragedy? Well, uh, some actors... Oh, by the way, you can uh, sit down now. Uh, if somebody's taken your seat on the bus, again, a little shove should do the job. Um, anyway, back to the matter at hand. Um, well, uh, some actors... Uh, we'll do it through natural means, uh, this delivery. They may recall a past tragedy on the line. Um, so if I imagine, say, the time I hit a dog outside H&M in Chiswick and I have a go, uh, so I'll just think of that moment and say the line, um, <laughs> they've taken my daughter to the shed. They've taken my daughter to the shed. Uh, no, but perhaps that one um, that uh, didn't have the desired effect. Uh, I think I need to think of a tragic moment, not a uh, comic one. Ugh, um, perhaps if I think about the time my mother hit me when I was a child. Uh, yes, better. Uh, deep breath. Um, they've taken my daughter to the shed, Mum. Horrible! Why you hit me again? Horrible! Sorry about that. You see, sometimes that can happen. Um, things uh, will creep in. Horrible man. So, um, yeah, that that will happen. So, uh, so I've got a little trick for that to stop myself. Uh, if 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 indeed uh, something else does trickle in like that, uh, the old acting trick is to pinch oneself just as you slip off the line and into the memory. Uh, so I'll try it again. And I'll show you. Uh, so I'll think of the mother again. A deep breath. They've taken my daughter to the shed, Mum. That's obviously a very natural reaction uh, to a hard pinch. So I'll just add a small melody to reinforce the sound um, and make it part of the scene and uh, then feed it into the next line. So uh, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a deep breath. Um, here we go. Uh, thinking of Mum. and we are, They've taken my daughter to the shed. I hope they don't have their way with her. Oh, I feel so sad. <sighs> Pinch is very hard. And, uh, and uh, uh, why did I do it on the penis? And uh, that's how you deliver a line in tragedy, anyway. That's how you do it. I suppose it would be remiss of me to uh, leave the genre without musing on those lost tragedies. Uh, by that I mean the text which began as tragedies and then through the Hollywood of the Broadway machine were changed to desperate love comedies or knockabout romances or, in the case of some, saccharine children's movies. 
Um, I'm minded to lay the blame at Andrew Webber's feet for much of it. Uh, I know too well that anything that goes through him comes out far worse than it went in, and I mean that quite literally. I, w I stayed in the room next to him at the Savoy when he had the Noro. I mean, the walls are paper thin and, and the vents surprisingly clear. Uh, so I heard it all and I smelt it all. And uh, I vow never to say that again. No. So many tragedies have been lost to the machine and the troubled inner workings of impresarios. Too many to go into great detail, but here are my favourite three. To think this is how they would have originally been presented. I mean, I could cry well, and start smashing things up just thinking about it. Such losses. Number one, Dirty Dancing. Before he perished, Patrick Swayze told me that his greatest regret was allowing the rewrite of Dirty Dancing to go ahead. The talented dancer had full rights over the piece and was beguiled by the idea of the dancing becoming the central concepts of the film. However... On watching the rushes, he realised he'd made a glaring error. You see, in the original, the dancing is more of a subplot to the abortion of his friend and dance colleague, Penny. Indeed, Bebe's father doesn't successfully save the girl, and she dies. Her body is weighted down and placed in the lake, only to be discovered by Bebe as she frolics with Johnny, who is Swayze's character, uh, in what were the original final moments of the scene. Crushed by Johnny's involvement in the situation, Bebe threatens to phone the police, at which time Johnny is overcome, uh, strangling her in the lake and once again weighting her body down there and then uh, and, and leaving her with his, uh, uh, in the lake with his, his uh, former colleague Penny. And in the closing moments, uh, I've had the time of my life, plays softly in a minor key, uh, on the panpipes as Johnny gets in the car and, and drives away. Uh, and in the background you can see uh, Babay's mother and father talking to the the person who runs the holiday camp, you know, uh, oh, she's just gone uh, for a spot of gold. I'm sure she'll be back, but of course we know at that time she won't be. Uh, she's at the bottom of a lake. Uh, beautiful. Number two, E.T., e. the extraterrestrial. When one thinks of E.T., the extraterrestrial, one thinks rightly of the movie by the same name, uh, because that's what it's referring to. But not many know that before Sacron Spielberg got his paws on it, the initial script was a lot more quintessential tragedy and less the woman's weepathon it is now. Uh, in the closing moments of the film, rather than the benevolent E.T. going home. In actual fact, he turns on Elliot, revealing that he has been infiltrating Earth and the family all along. A terrified Elliot makes for his bicycle, but before he can get to it, E.T. knocks him out, puts him in the front of the bicycle, and the actual original flying scene is E.T. flying the bike with Elliot in the basket to a nearby lake where he drags him and holds him under the water and uh, drowns him. After weighting his body down, the final shots show E.T. driving away on the bicycle to the, again, the original flying theme, which is played beautifully in a minor key on the glockenspiel. Spielberg said he removed the ending because he felt it would upset children. But like I said to him in the toilets at the BAFTAs, Stephen, we're in the movies. Since when have we ever given a fuck about children? And as he shook his penis in full view of us, Harvey Weinstein said he couldn't agree more. 
Number three. Mrs. Doubtfire. Mrs. Doubtfire, the lovable tale of a mentally deranged father who lives as a transsexual in order to stalk his own family, is sort of not just as a comedy, but as a deep study of the human psyche and the troubled nature of a man. But in the original Korean version, it's actually a desperately dramatic revenge tragedy, and once again, I have always felt it's better for it. In this version, Daniel Hillard, the part made famous by Robin Williams, sleep well, old fish, not only dresses like a woman, he uses the actual skin of women he has murdered. The film goes hard in laying the blame for this man's descent to madness, murder and mayhem at the feet of the wife who requests his divorce because she wants to pork a work colleague. In the Hollywood version, uh, they reconcile, but uh, in one of the most famous scenes in all Korean film, and in all tragedy, the original Hillard accompanies the wife and children and her lover on a weekend retreat, and after luring her to the lake by the cabins where the children are sleeping, Hillard holds the wife under the water, drowning her, before weighting her body down and returning to his car. After a short look to the cabin, he drives away, and a Korean song made famous by Korean artists in the country of Korea plays on a gong. Bonus track. Beauty and the Beast. Yes, I thought I'd do one more as a bit of a surprise. This has naturally been done differently, but having seen it several times, I keep coming back to what I think would make the film much better and distinctly more tragic, which I think it needs. Um... In the original, you might remember, the Beast finds love in time to be turned back into a human man and to marry Belle. But I think it would certainly be more cathartic if the Beast actually doesn't quite make the last falling petal and instead is doomed to an eternity as a wild beast. Uh, in the closing moments, when Belle assures him, in perhaps too enthusiastic a manner, that she is happy to live and make love to a large beast, his animal instincts take over, and he savagely attacks and eats her, leaving perhaps only the golden dress which twitches in the wind during the final moments. For added tragedy, the candle burns out, the clock stops, and the old fat teapot lady dies from internal four-degree burns from the hot tea that has been continually poured into her. The only survivor is the small cup, Chip, who, desperate and alone, can see no way out, and hops up to the highest turret of the castle and throws himself off. Only he doesn't quite hit the ground, and instead his fall is cushioned somewhat by Belle's still-twitching, ever-twitching, golden dress and perhaps a small globule of the candle-wax, meaning he doesn't quite break enough and is left paralysed from the rim down. Out of the shadows there, the beast comes along and fetches up the small chip, even smaller than before, and takes him, perhaps, to a nearby lake to get him some water as he snatches for breath. But seeing him overwhelmed, the beast covers the crockery's eyes, and holding him under the water, he drowns him, before wading into the water himself, and holding himself under the water, and drowns himself, weighting both the chip and himself down in the murky waters forever. Blackout. Hans Zimmer composes. I've tried to sell this to Pixar, but they're determined to keep working on the doomed sequel to Up working title down, alas. But believe you me, that is what I call a tragedy. 
and so to correspondence. We end, as always, with a letter from a keen listener. Well, a listener. Actually, we can't be sure of that. I had somebody write to us the other day saying I owed money on a mortgage and was in great debt, and if I didn't pay it back soon, I'd lose the house. I mean, it was very convincing. They had the right address and everything, even signed it off as my lawyer. It's one of the many I've been getting for months. As I say, very convincing, but really, you should just listen a bit more to the podcast. I mean, I've never even mentioned my address on the podcast, or my national insurance number, or that my password hint is Judy Garland's daughter, or my lawyer's name, an unusual one in it too, so how would they know that? <laughs> Just try and listen a bit more, will you? Maybe you'll you'll, you'll write in about the right things. <laughs> Old money on a mortgage and running up a great day. Sean, get Mr. Fothering Bumcrunch on the phone. Yes, yes, my lawyer, get him on the phone. I mean it. This week, Nellie Fake Sistrict, 32 from the Lake District, writes him with a very curious question <laughs> indeed. Helly Nellie. She writes, Dear H, I heard about you covering tragedy. Can I say, I don't think it's your best. Uh, interesting start. As a cover, it's fairly accomplished, and the short dance routine that goes along with it is beguiling, but I fear the bowl cut and yellow crop tops are a step too far, if you'll pardon the pun. What? I wish you well and congratulate you on finally coming out as a gay man. I suppose we should have all known along with you calling yourself H. Who would have thought that all along the H stood for Have you heard I'm a gay man? My question is this. Did you meet Barry Gibb before recording the song, and what's he like? I hear his beard is very wiry, and that he doesn't suffer fools. Can you confirm? If so, I'll make a note in my journal, which I keep on the male members of bands that I prefer. You'll be happy to know I have one of you, and not the evil Lee. Your dance moves are crisper, and so is your miming. Best wishes, Nelly. P.S. Can I have a lock of your hair? I won't sniff it. It'll just go in my book for me to look at when I miss you. P.P.S. I promise I won't sniff it. Oh, Nellie, I think we've got our wires crossed somewhat, haven't we? Uh, our wires crossed somewhat, I think. <laughs> it's quite funny, really, uh, even though it is a great waste of my time. Uh, Sean tells me that, indeed, this is regarding the band's steps and their cover of the Bee Gees tra tragedy, which has already been mentioned in the podcast. Oh, I must confess, I've never met H., uh, nor any of the Steps bands, uh, though I believe I, I, I believe I have seen Lisa Scott Lee recently uh, in my local Morrison's uh, when I was doing my shopping. Uh, she was very kind indeed. She gave me a discount on, on my shopping, uh, and she waited for me to pack before running more items through the till. Very thoughtful. That's what I thought. I thought very thoughtful. Uh, now, uh, look, a lesser person would dismiss your questions because of the clear madness from which you suffer, but I I'm not uh, strictly a person, so I'll go beyond the norm, and uh, being as I know Barry personally, I'm more than willing to share some showbiz goz. Uh, so, where to begin? Um, look, Barry is a lovely guy, don't get me wrong, but uh, I'll say what I said to Michael Parkinson. Had he not lost both his testicles in that accident, he never would have been able to sing that high, and he wouldn't have had a career. Now, yes, great songwriters, beautiful, often very clever lyrics. 
and uh, and they didn't just write their own songs, of course. They, they wrote for others. And again, all brilliant. You don't even have to listen to um, Heart Taker or Islands Up Her Stream or, or Chains Reacting to understand, you know, that they were brilliant. And I can't fault them. But in truth, Barry would tell you that he loathes singing in the falsetto because it reminds him consistently of that fateful day with the food processor and he misses those big set of balls that he lost to his breakfast smoothie. I did warn him several times. I said to him, Barry, you will get those caught one day. You see, he'd sleep in the nude and then spend most of the start of the day nude, um, including both breakfast and brunch. Completely starkers. Uh, but his balls were so large, it made the sack very stretchy, and the whole business was so pendulous that uh, he'd sort of taken to bringing them up and resting them over his shoulder so he could get about a bit easier. Uh, and, of course, one day he goes to make his breakfast smoothie with his Nutribullet, uh, and in the heat of the L.A. sun breaking through the windows, his balls and sack came free, sliding along his sweaty shoulder, down his sweaty chest, and into the Nutribullet. Um, which, of course, was on, and uh, it whizzed around, and uh, he was rushed to hospital, and upon waking from his operation, he found he could only sing in the extremely high register, which has come to be loved by so many, including dolphins and whales who uh, really respond to it. I'm told SeaWorld has been using jive-talking to catch whales since the release of the Saturday Night Fever album. Uh, so, yes, Nelly, uh, he's a lovely chap, a dear friend. A wiry beard? Yes, it is, absolutely. Uh, he's been known to cut cheese with it, uh, to eat, and, and also for competitions. Uh, and suffer fools? Uh, I'd say not. Uh, well, he didn't really get on with his brothers, and, and look where they ended up. Great songs, though. I do hope that answers your misguided questions. Nelly Fakes a Strict, 32 from the Lake District. To you, I say, goodbye. Well, that's all we have time for today. Join me next time. We'll be popping back to that most festive of genres, the pantomime. Join me as I investigate the genre and try to answer some of the all-important questions like, if pantomimes are meant to be funny, why are so many of them full of people who clearly aren't? Why, when pantomimes are so simple, borderline remedial, do the Americans still not understand them? I think we all know the answer to that. And will pantomimes survive once Christopher Biggins kicks the glitter-filled bucket? Probably will. You've been listening to Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. And so, until next time, to you I say, good side.